Welcome entrepreneurs and startups to Art of the Kickstart, the podcast that every entrepreneur needs to listen to before you launch. I'm your host, Roy Morjan, president and founder of Inventus Partners, the world's only turnkey product launch company that has helped over 2,000 innovations successfully raise over $400 million in capital since 2010. Each week, I interview a crowdfunding success story, an inspirational entrepreneur, or a business expert in order to help you take your startup to the next level. This show would not be possible without our main sponsor, Product Hype a 300,000 member crowdfunding media site and newsletter that's generated millions of dollars in sales for over a thousand top tier projects since 2017. Check out producthype.co to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to another edition of Art of the Kickstart. Today, I am joined with the founder of the Elevated Craft Cocktail Shaker, Mr. Adam Craft. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today on Art of the Kickstart. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, super stoked to finally get you on the show. It seems like uh, many, many moons ago that you launched your original Kickstarter campaign, raising almost a half a million dollars on Kickstarter. And then over the last two years, you've been in demand over on Indiegogo, and you've now done over two and a half million dollars in sales, uh, shipping, you know, I think what, over 50,000 of these products out to the backers. So really excited to have you on the show. Um, But before I get ahead of myself, which I typically love to do on these shows, let's tell the audience a little bit about your background uh, in terms of what led you to creating this product and being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So my background is product design. And um, prior to starting Elevated Craft, I had a product design and engineering consultancy. And so I was exposed to a lot of different types of products, anything from toys to medical devices. And then what kind of led to the cocktail shaker idea was that I designed a series of vacuum insulated water bottles for somebody. So it gave me exposure to the engineering behind that. In that process, made trips to China, going to those factories, and then um, ultimately kind of started the shaker as just a a side gig and uh, just a fun design product project, really. Yeah, no, it certainly looks like a lot of fun. I think anybody that's making cocktails these days, I think during the pandemic, we've all had uh, a few, um, you know, myself included there. But um, give me an idea or give our audience an idea of kind of what do you attribute to the success of this product? And what was that aha moment that finally allowed you to kind of pursue this full time? Yeah, so um, starting it out as in my head, I was thinking more of a uh, going straight to Amazon. And I knew that, you know, the molds and things for vacuum inside of water bottles weren't that expensive. I, I had saved up a little bit of money. So I thought, you know, I can probably finance the first round of, you know, 3000 units or however much on my own. But during the design process, having a few moments where there was the kind of cool factor led into, into the design. And so that's, a prerequisite to doing a Kickstarter. So if I were just to do a, a, a cocktail shaker on Kickstarter, I, it wouldn't really do that well, I don't think. I think that products that do well always have that kind of like, but wait, there's more aspect of it. And, um, and for the shaker, at first, the first thing I thought was, okay, I, a vacuum insulated shaker would be good. Then I added threads to it and made it where it wouldn't leak. And I'm like, okay, that solves a problem 
doing the integrated six ounce measuring top to it was, was really kind of the, but wait, there's more aspect. And that was a turning point that, that told me this has something that I think I could put on, on crowdfunding. And I, I was able to start to like wrap a, a story around that and develop the kind of pitch that went into the video and, and all that stuff. How'd you come up with the name for the product? Well, I actually came up with the name for the company, Elevated Craft, before the product. So I was, I was on this kind of deep dive of wanting to do a product of my own after developing hundreds for, for other people. And uh, just having the background as a product designer, I didn't want, I didn't, I knew that if I gave myself some structure to design within, then I could come up with something. At least that's what I, what I hoped. And so my last name's Craft. I came up with the name Elevated Craft, and that sort of fit within the could be coffee, it could be food, it could be cocktails. It sort of at least gave some guardrails to the design process. And then kind of serendipitously, the designing the vacuum insulated water bottle, going to China, you know, thinking about cocktail shakers. I had some crappy cocktail shakers. Prior to that, I had, I had made... Um, homebrew beer in the past. I got really big into cold brew coffee at one point. And so I was sort of in my head as hobbies, I was already doing a lot of this kind of craft related things. Yeah. So the name just came from my last name and then, uh, and giving me some guardrails to design within. Yeah. I love that fact. And actually, you know, broadening out your potential product line that may come out of this. So interested to know, you know, what was your mission kind of at the outset and has that changed now over time? Yeah. I mean, the initial mission was, I think, just to have a successful crowdfunding launch. Like I, I've been a student of crowdfunding or, or say like a fan of crowdfunding since I was in school for industrial design. And, um, and well, actually I'd say after school because it didn't exist whenever I was in college and I graduated and had my first kind of real gig and was kicking myself thinking, man, if, if Kickstarter was around while I was a student, every student project, I would have been trying to crowdfund. And that would have been like the heyday of, you know, raising $80,000, selling potato salad and that sort of thing. So from then, I, um, I was following more of a professional career and, uh, and just got to a point where I developed enough products that I thought I want to do this. So first milestone was just have some success on crowdfunding and uh, beyond that, figure it out. <laughs> so that's, that's kind of was the initial goal. What was your first interaction with crowdfunding? How did it come across your path? It's hard to say. I don't, I think just being into, you know, product design, uh, I was probably exposed very early. I, I can't imagine, I, I don't know exactly when there were some pivotal moments over the years. Um, I remember going to a trade show and seeing that peak design had a booth and it was like a really small booth. I think they just had their first camera mount, the clips on your belt. And I was, and I saw that they had like four or six people working in the booth. And I just thought like, Oh man, that's amazing. Like they're, they're a real company. Now I also had a similar experience seeing uh, the founder of rad cycles or rad bikes the electric bike company yep. that did really well on an Indiegogo launch. And it was the, the same thing. And I got to you know talk to that guy and I'm like, these, these are real companies. Roll that into down the years, I'd go to more trade shows and start seeing more companies like uh, Hideaway Bottle that was a crowdfunding launch in like 2014. 
and uh, Growler Works and, and all these people. And I'm seeing them at like the houseware show. And it's just like, okay, so this, this is starting to get more real. You can turn, you can turn a Kickstarter launch into a real company. It's not just hobbyists. And, and that made me think a lot more you know, clearly about it and do a lot more research and, and getting my costing together and everything else. Because I thought, you know, if I have a good successful launch, that's validation to really do a deep dive and, and kind of bet on doing another company, doing a, a new company. And that would be Elevated Craft. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, you touched on in terms of some of those preparation items that you were going through. And certainly from a product design standpoint, you know, kind of what it looks like to get it made, manufactured, shipped, those logistics and things like that. But in terms of preparing for the crowdfunding campaign, how long did you prepare for it? And what were some of those things that you did leading up to the launch on Kickstarter? Yeah. Um, well, I listened to this podcast and I listened to a lot of other podcasts. I've read books. I, uh, went, I, I just did a deep, deep dive on crowdfunding to learn about the marketing side of things. And I knew I needed to take as much ownership of that as possible. You know, there are obviously companies that can help with marketing and everything else. And, and they're very valuable in the process, but there's certain things that just the founder needs to create the voice of the company. You need to create, you need to really be invested in it. And so that's what I did. So I did all, all as much research as I could. And I knew that the video was a huge aspect of of the launch. And um, basically after doing prototyping and, and everything else, and in, in my product, just as a quick side is because it's vacuum insulated, I couldn't do, I couldn't fake it till I make it. Like I tried to CNC out a solid piece of steel to make what looked like a good, you know, uh, the final product. But at the end of the day, I had to actually get the product made because just a 3d print or a CNC thing doesn't represent a vacuum insulated product. Sure. So, so that was all going on behind the scenes. That was its own struggle. That that's actually what made it take so long. But while that was happening, that did give me a lot of time to just think really hard about that messaging and what, what, what was going to be in the video during that process, actually. So my, my wife had twin babies. And so, um, I was doing the new dad thing as well, which is a lot of holding a baby while it's sleeping for three hours at a time. And I would just be thinking a lot about the video and about the script. And I was writing it in my head and rewriting it. And, um, and that was sort of the, the start of, of when I could start to see that it would be, it would be successful if I pulled it off the way that I was envisioning it, I guess. <laughs> I bet. So we always talk to founders about how important that month or two or six or you know, a full year potentially is in terms of getting your crowd, your tribe, your community amped and ready for this campaign to go live. So I know this was a couple of years ago when your campaign went live, but anything that you can recall that really put yourself in such a good position to, you know, overfund this campaign so much early on? Yeah, I think getting the video done early and having that to iterate on and get you know, different versions of it cut. And I think there's, if somebody's thinking about filming a video, really knowing that if you put in the work ahead of time, it all leads up to the the day that you're shooting the video is everything's in place. But 
something that I didn't realize is how valuable all that additional B-roll is and all the other you know content that you can get out of a day or two of filming with with professionals. And so you know, we were able to re redo the video and cut things up and, and take the time to do that. That was the major part of the lead up. About a month before the campaign went live and up to, let's say, two weeks, I did uh, an email lead gen campaign and you know, in doing all the research, basically was hearing that, you know, spending $2 and 50 cents or $3 or whatever, whatever it was for an email was worth it. And that if, if, you, if it was costing too much, then you know that your messaging's off and whatnot. And we ran this campaign and we were getting our email opt-ins at like 70 cents, you know, but way, way below a dollar per email opt-in. So kind of quickly got a list of, I think, nearly 4,000 people for like 2,800 bucks. And that gave me a lot of confidence. Um, We certainly use that and we use it a lot during the the initial launch. And um, I also use Kickbooster as a sort of an affiliate thing, which, you know, for the most part, that didn't really do that much, but it did provide for a newbie like myself, it, it gave me a lens to see how these emails were performing and, and whatnot. Cause, um, it had a pretty helpful dashboard, but to that tune, I think that email list turned into at least $38,000 in, in revenue. And so on day one, I believe we got something like 65 grand in, in sales, which created that snowball effect that you know most people would know about in crowdfunding where the first three days are super, super important. So hitting that email list helped a lot, but without, without a good video and good content, then I don't know that we would have gotten the, the email list anyway. Yeah. Now let's talk a little bit about that campaign video. I mean, in terms of the the process, what was that like? You know, how did you decide what to include in your video? You know, you spoke at the end of it, which I think is critical uh, to putting a face to the brand. But you also used, let's say, an influencer in terms of Sheldon, uh, you know, a three-time Guinness World Record holding mixologist. What was that like? And I, I truly love how you get straight to the point immediately in the video and capture someone's attention and kind of hook them for the rest of it. I think a lot of videos miss that. So talk a little bit about, you know, overall that campaign video and some of the the process that you guys went through there. Yeah. So the, um, my advice is to treat, make sure to be ready to do lots of iterations and, um, treat it like a prototype, like you would anything else. So if you're a product developer or whatever your background is, just know that, you know, the the day that you shoot with the professionals, you should have a lot of these quote like prototypes done of the video. And I did that, and I had a lot of failures, or what what would have been bad videos leading up to what turned out to be a good video. So, as an example, I wrote a script that was very much in my voice, that was just talking kind of like design speak about all the feature benefits, you know, and I had, I had studied like the difference between a feature and a benefit and leading with the benefit and not just jiving into like engineering kind of talk and some of that jazz. And so I did a a first video and, um, and it was fine. I didn't record it professionally, but I did like a voiceover of it. I also went on Fiverr and I had a professional for like, you know, five bucks or 20 bucks or whatever. I had them read my script and, um, to see what that tone would come out to be. And it just didn't, didn't do much. So I, but what it did was it started to give the, the, um, keywords around the features and benefits to talk about in the movie or in the, in the actual video. And it just kind of iterated from there. So then I, I wrote 
what what I thought would be the like the funny scripts, and I knew that I couldn't pull off that tone. But the backup plan was like, okay, if we can't find somebody to be to act in the video, then here's a version that I can probably pull off, and we'll just we'll keep the you know the the video leads with your cocktail shaker sucks. And I, you know, and it goes from there. And so the, the way I would categorize the campaign is like you said, the first five seconds or whatever, really important. The lucky part of it was we, so Sheldon was somebody that I met maybe six months prior to doing the video. I saw some of his stuff on Instagram and it just so happened that he was bouncing between New York and Phoenix where I live. And, uh, I, knew him as, you know, a good dude and whatnot, but I didn't think that he would be in town to actually film the video. And I didn't want to put all my cards on, you know, is he actually going to be in Arizona? Uh, all that sort of stuff. I didn't know him that well. I've gotten to know him well since then, but, um, so I wasn't relying on him being the lead character. I was relying on a good script. And then, uh, we couldn't find anybody backup plan was that I was going to be the sort of actor in it. And on the Thursday, we were filming on a Sunday, on a Thursday before as like a last ditch effort. I'm like, hey, Sheldon, are you actually in town this weekend? And he was, and it just worked out. So that was, that was luck. The other lucky part was that he was able to deliver the lines and was able to do it masterfully. So at the point that he signed on, I, we reworked the script a little bit to add in his intro and just start thinking of all these other clips. And the last thing I'll say about it is, having a good person that knows how to add, give direction during the filming. So as the creator, I was able to write the script and, and uh, kind of think through the shots and everything. But on the day of the shoot, I did almost nothing because the prep work had been done. And I had a freelancer that was knew how to direct actors and knew how to direct the cameraman. And he would say, okay, can you stop? Say that line again okay, say it again, but say it with this, you know, this way. So working with some pros on that, on that front was hugely helpful as well. I can imagine. Um, so earlier you talked about, you know, maybe we were talking before the show, but in terms of when your Kickstarter campaign ended, you moved over to Indiegogo in demand. Talk to the audience a little bit about why you decided to go that route, why you recently stopped selling on Indiegogo and how you were able to successfully raise another $2 million on in demand. Yeah, the um, in-demand transition is is amazing, and I had heard about it. But on the advice I had heard was always like, "Yeah, definitely have in-demand where it starts as soon as your Kickstarter ends, because you're going to still have people linking to it and whatnot." But the the common advice was, you might get another ten to twenty percent on top of the sales, and uh, and that's it. And then it's just kind of kind of fizzle. Well. The transition out of Kickstarter, so the pandemic had hit, factories had closed down. I was far enough along. I, I had full confidence that once the factories came back, you know, we, we were going to get it through. And that was throughout from the start. So I had mentioned that I had had a you know, working prototype made and all that stuff before the video. So supply chain just slowed to a halt. And Indiegogo In Demand allowed for me to continue to take pre-sales on a platform that I didn't need to worry a lot about the tech and and whatnot. And so I know that like on Shopify, there's a sort of a way to take pre-sales. I knew that the system was, was good and that we would get paid every 30 days. 
And to be honest, whenever it first started, it was pretty slow. And I just kind of thought like, okay, well, this is, this is sort of a post, you know, crowdfunding kind of amount of revenue that might come in. But as we got on the platform, we used the same video and same ads and just started directing them towards, um, towards the campaign and the revenue just started ticking up and up and up. And we did have a, a huge, when all the lockdowns happened and people started working from home, our sales just went through the roof through Indiegogo in demand. But the, the reason that we we're on it for so long was, was more to do a supply chain than anything. It was that I would get a shipping container in and by the time it would arrive, we would have pre, you know, we would have sold those out and I would have ordered another container of goods. And it's just, you know, things took a long time. There's delays with ocean and, and it also, there was a lot of, it was my fear of buying so much inventory too. I mean, to be honest, is like to go from thinking like, well, maybe we can sell, I don't know, 10,000 units, 20,000 units a year to all of a sudden selling that, you know, times three or four and needing to purchase that much inventory is pretty, pretty scary. So Indiegogo in demand allowed for all that flexibility throughout 2020 until, yeah, until pretty recently. And it was just sort of like, it didn't take a lot of upkeep. The ads continued to perform and we did get a lot of help from Indiegogo. And the difference with uh, Kickstarter is Kickstarter. We never heard from, from anybody for the, you know, we were only on there 30 days on Indiegogo. I have a, a rep that is part of the company that I could email and say, can you help with this? Or can we get in this email blast this week? And, um, and they were super, you know, good about that. Yeah. There's definitely a difference there in terms of the, uh, the handholding or the interpersonalness of both platforms in terms of how they work with creators. And unfortunately that's, uh, that's the way it's been, uh, since I think both have started. So it is, uh, it can be a difference, you know, especially from a first time creator, but potentially obviously given your product development experience and everything in terms of bringing this thing to market, it sounds like you did everything right. But what I would love to know is how did you engage both communities, right? You've got over 6,000 backers on Kickstarter. You've got another 20,000 plus on Indiegogo. Talk about your experience with the backers and how you went about managing their feedback. Um, well, I mean, Kickstarter backers seem to be a lot more vocal. And you can see with 6,000 backers, I think we have, I don't know, 400 plus comments on Kickstarter. And with 26,000 backers or however many on Indiegogo, there's like 150, you know, there's hardly any dialogue. Um, I think it there's definitely a different group of, of people it feels like the Kickstarter has a lot more passionate followers, but they want their voice heard and there's a lot of demand there. And I feel like the Indiegogo follow backers were more passive to that tune though. When we would do some sort of promo or cross promotion with somebody, the Kickstarter backers would yield a lot more results on that. So if I would make an arrangement with another campaign to, you know, if they post a link to our campaign and um, in their update, and then we'll do the same. I would always see that that the Kickstarter backers were way more likely to click on links and just want to be involved. And so it's it's a different different deal. But to that tune now, I mean, if we if I post something on an update on um, Indiegogo with a a code or 
you know, anything like, hey, join our, we have a private Facebook group that has over 4,000 members for, it's called the Elevated Craft Crew. But people that own the shaker and they want to share recipes and whatnot, if I post a call to action in Indiegogo, we definitely get a lot of results for that. It's just not the same scale. So it's, it's, it's definitely different, but it's kind of nice on Indiegogo that people treat it more like a pre-purchase that they're just going to wait for. Yeah. At least that's what it seemed like our audience was doing. So I know earlier you spoke about, you know, working with Kick Booster. You work with them both on the Kickstarter campaign as well as the Indiegogo campaign. And then midway through the campaign, you also partnered with one of our sponsors, Product Hype. What were some of those considerations that you were looking for in terms of, you know, more promotion for the product and for the campaigns? I think all of that is just an experiment. Whenever you're first working, you know, you're doing your first product launch. Anything I looked at those, it's like, okay, if we're in an email blast, is that going to yield results? If we do kick booster, is that going to yield results? If we, you know, you, you kind of test things out. Um, so it was always sort of a difficult decision. The, it was particularly difficult when, um, when I was in Kickstarter, because just getting the numbers figured out, whenever you start looking at all the different percentages and you're, you don't really, you kind of know your, your manufacturing costs, but you're also new with a factory and you're like, is this going to change? Ocean freight costs are at like a historic high. And so the reason I bring that up is because as you throw on all of these promotional things, you just have to kind of factor in the cost and, and think, is it going to make sense? Um, if I pay a commission on this, is it going to yield you know, a good result? Commission is great because you just pay for the, the results. So, you know, Kick Booster is about doing affiliate marketing. I just never was able to really push it out there that much. And we really didn't get much PR at all throughout the the campaign. So the ads did the heavy lifting and just that people repurchasing. I think we got, uh, we got a lot, we have a lot of people that buy multiple shakers and give them as gifts and managing the community and the kind of the voice to keep everything very, very positive and never be like, I would never do an update where it's like, man, the, uh, the supply chain screwing me over because everything's taken so long. It was always like, we're in it together and that sort of thing. And, and I feel like a big part of our marketing was, you know, if we got in an email blast, that's great. Getting the community to back you and to tell their friends and everything was, was even better. But there's so many different tools. I think every campaign is just like, you need to experiment. So long as you aren't losing money, then why not? Absolutely. So I noticed that the product isn't on sale on Amazon, right? Not currently. So what advice or what kind of process have you gone through in terms of or advice that you could give to another entrepreneur in terms of maybe your why as to why it's not listed on Amazon yet and some of the success that you've now seen, you know, just selling the product directly through your website? Yeah, I think I think it's worth just mentioning on when you have crowdfunding success, there's some avenues that you can go. I, I know a very successful crowdfunding company that does very little e-commerce and they just went straight to wholesaling and are selling in, you know, sur la table and the different different stores. A lot of people might go straight to Amazon. In in my case, I wanted to go to Shopify because we had such a good, we had so many backers already, and and kind of a, a that would also lead into they're all sort of on an email list, and and it felt like a good transition that we could control. I did have a huge amount of fear in being on Indiegogo in demand for so long thinking like, are we just the cool kids of crowdfunding? And once we go on, 
on Shopify, we're going to lose some of that sort of like pre-order magic that that probably happens where there's a little bit of, you know, FOMO, you are discounting things, that sort of jazz. And I'm really happy that putting together the Shopify and just kind of like starting to direct the ads over to Shopify, we didn't see a drop in sales and, and we kind of lose the commission that we were paying to, to Indiegogo. And so all in all, it's been a, a nice transition. My advice is as it relates to e-commerce, I should have started the, the Shopify store way, way ahead of time. Like I, I thought in my head, okay, everything sort of, you know, it's there for you. We should, we'll just knock out the Shopify store in a week. It took a lot longer than that. And um, my advice to, to people that are doing crowdfunding is why not just take your, your content and go ahead and put it all into a Shopify store ahead of time and get that built out and tweak it before you do your launch. But don't wait until the very end, because there are a lot of, it's its own it's its own thing, right? You can now, now you can start running promos. You can start doing abandoned cart things. Like you have so much more flexibility than when you're on Kickstarter or Indiegogo. And so there's a lot to learn with that, but we didn't have any drop in sales. Sales increased going to Shopify. So the the question of why not go straight to Amazon was just like, if we're already directing traffic to our own site, why not just, or to, to our own, say, you know, to the Indiegogo side of things and it was working, why not just take that over to Shopify? And so it's worked out. We, we will go to Amazon. I'm actually building out Amazon right now. It's a little bit tricky. It's, it's uh, at that point we lose control. We lose a lot of control. And so we've had so much success by, by working directly with the customers and being able to help them on customer service related things. Once we go on Amazon, it's, it's a different ball game. And, uh, the reason that I'm doing it is, is because I know that our, our, uh, audience are looking for us on, on Amazon. And I know that a lot of other companies are using our, our name elevated craft in their like ads and, and search terms and stuff. And so by being a brand registered, you know, we are elevated craft is a, a registered trademark. And so we can go in and, and hopefully dominate the category. Boot them out. We'll see. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tricky too because we're a we'll be you know the highest the highest listed shaker the highest price shaker on Amazon, and we've we've never been compared directly with all these other cheap kind of you know shakers like basically the shakers that we built the ad around saying your cocktail shaker sucks it freezes your hand it leaks you know and all this stuff it's like that's what's on Amazon, but will our message translate when you're just looking at sort of static images? a high price and then you have to do a lot more research. I'm not totally sure, but I'm completely happy and bullish to the fact that our Shopify store has worked and and great conversion, you know, the ads have performed really well and continue to and um and yeah, I mean we're we're always above a 5x ROAS, but typically 7 plus, you know, blended's always great. It's yeah, Shopify is pretty awesome. Yeah. Those are amazing numbers, Adam. So congrats on that. And obviously the amazing product that you've built that consumers can't get enough of. So with that, this is going to get us into our launch round where I'm going to rapid fire a handful of questions at you. You good to go? Yeah. So what inspired you to be an entrepreneur? <laughs> and and these need rapid answers, right? Not necessarily. Um, I, don't, I, think, I think I was born that way. I think I've always 
always wanted to. I, I have some family members that have been entrepreneurs, but it could be just the uh, growing up in like the punk rock scenes and not wanting to work for the man. I hear you. So if you could have a drink with any entrepreneur throughout history, who would it be? Oh, entrepreneur. First thing that came to mind was Anthony Bourdain, but I don't think he was much of an entrepreneur. Um, He created things, you know? He did. Yeah. I was just having a drink with Anthony Bourdain would be pretty amazing. Yeah. I'll just leave it at that. What would have been your first question for him? I don't know. I would just want to like shoot the hay and have a good time. Talk about travel and life. What, uh, what cocktail would you make for him? For him, it's hard to say. I think I would maybe Jungle Bird. Whiskey, I don't know. I, I love them all. It's hard to, hard to say <laughs> to that. Shake it till you make it, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, any books you would recommend to our listeners? Uh, fresh off the top of my head would be maybe Profit First for e-commerce. Just try to make sure you have a good understanding of your income and bank accounts and all that stuff. It's not, not exciting things, but it's a super easy read and helps you figure out how to set the foundation of business. Yeah. And speaking of that, what advice would you give to a new inventor or entrepreneur that's looking to launch their product on Kickstarter? I think, I don't know. I'd, I'd say maybe make sure you have a real good understanding of where your strong suits are and, and try to leverage whatever superpower you might have and uh, find good people to fill in the gaps on on the other sides of it and just test, prototype and test. And, and, and when I say that, most people think of prototyping as like an engineering thing. I use prototyping real loosely, even for if I write something, put it on Fiverr and let, a, let somebody read it, a professional voice actor, cost five bucks. That's a prototype in my head. So prototype, prototype, prototype. Nice. Solid advice there, Adam. Last question. What does the future of crowdfunding look like? I think it's probably much closer to e-commerce, at least. There's so many categories. So if if I'm just talking about physical products in and of themselves, I think that's much different than a a, a piece of art or something. But my experience with, with Indiegogo in demand would be that I could see them transitioning more and more to a closer bridge to Shopify and maybe even a platform that people don't get off of. I don't know. You know, that's, it just feels like it's so close with, with my experience, the things that you don't get make you want to go to traditional, like a Shopify or an Amazon or something. But at the point that they integrate in abandoned cart metrics and telling you what your open rates are and, you know, things like that. It's like, it's, it's pretty costly if you're paying the five to 8% to be on Indiegogo in demand, but for somebody that has no technical background, it's a great, it's a great thing. So I think that they'll just get closer and closer to that, at least with Indiegogo. I don't think Kickstarter will. Yeah. Well, Adam, this has been amazing. This is your opportunity to give uh, the audience your pitch, tell people what you're all about, where they should go and why they should check you out. Yeah, guys, I'd really love you. Just uh, check out elevatedcraft.com and um, check out the product. And you can kind of see if you also look at the Indiegogo and the Kickstarter, you can find that under Elevated Craft. But I think it'll paint a pretty good picture for where we've started and and where we've gone. The site is doing well. And yeah, pick up a shaker if if you want one. It's It's a solid product and 
got a good fan base. You're also welcome to join the Elevated Craft crew and see sort of what an active community looks like. There's over, like I said, over 4,000 people on on that Facebook group. And that's just, that's not really a marketing thing. That's um, just a bunch of people sharing cocktails and good ideas. Amazing. Well, audience, thanks again for tuning in. Make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for the notes, the transcript, links to Elevated Craft, as well as everything else we talked about today. And of course, thank you to our crowdfunding podcast sponsors, The Gadget Flow and Product Type. And if you loved this episode as much as I did, make sure to leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening station. Mr. Adam Craft, thank you so much for joining us today on Art of the Kickstart. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another amazing episode of Art of the Kickstart, the show about building a better business, world, and life with crowdfunding. If you've enjoyed today's episode, show us some love by giving us a great rating on your favorite listening station. And of course, make sure to visit artofthekickstart.com for all the previous episodes. And if you need some help, that's what we're here for. Make sure to send me an email to info at artofthekickstart.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on the next episode.